0: Uh, just to give you a little heads up about what we're doing in RUF this semester, is, is that we are looking at what the Bible says about our relationships. Now, of course, not everybody in here um, gives any, you know, give stock to the Bible or maybe even consider yourself a Christian, and that's okay because our hope is that we together, whether you consider yourself convinced or unconvinced, uh, We'll explore these passages in Scripture together to see if they hold out any wisdom to us in regard to our relationships. And so just by way of a recap, uh, the first week we talked about idolatry and we talked about our tendencies and our uh, instincts to want to uh, idolize other people or even to idolize romantic relationships. And so last week we talked about uh, the fact that we are created in God's image and therefore designed and formatted for relationships. And tonight we're going to talk about drama. And for some of you, as soon as you hear that word, you immediately start thinking about a genre of movies, like a romantic dramedy or some other type, Uh, some of you start thinking about the theater department here at school. But I want you to think about, I'm going to use that word tonight in the way that we use it kind of on an everyday level, meaning like relational drama. Like, hey, did you hear about him and her? Major drama this weekend, right? Or man, you should have seen what went on in this apartment Crazy drama. So, I mean, I think what we mean by that when we say that is um, heightened conflict, uh, relational issues, relational tension. And what I want to say tonight is that even the most healthiest of relationships uh, can be infected by and are infected by at least some level of drama where uh, there is anger, there's disappointment, there's manipulation, there's confusion. All of our relationships. Or in some ways infected with drama. And so the question for tonight is, if we are made for relationships, if relationships are such a great thing, what went wrong? Why are our relationships so frustrating and so hard and so heartbreaking? Well, with that question in mind, I want to draw your attention to this passage in Genesis. If you have a Bible, you can flip it open to Genesis 3, or you can just follow along in the handout in front of you. And uh, it's a a lengthier passage, but I think that it's worth it to kind of read the whole thing in its entirety. So, um, if you'll indulge me, I'm just going to read uh, these 15 verses um, before you, and then we'll look at it together, okay? Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is God's word for us tonight. If you would, just pray with me and pray for me as we consider this passage together, okay? Uh, So let me pray. Father, I would ask that in these next few moments that you would be our teacher, that you would uh, come and make that which is hard to understand um, accessible. I pray that you would open up our eyes, that you would indeed unclog our ears and give us the ability, maybe for the first time, to to really see um, that which is beautiful and that which is good and that which is true. So would you do that? That is our uh, prayer now we would ask, and we would ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, okay, so I just want to answer three questions about this passage concerning our relational drama. Okay? Here are the questions. What went wrong with us personally? What went wrong with us relationally? And then what is the only hope that can restore both of these problems? Okay? Okay? So what went wrong with us personally, what went wrong with us relationally, and then what's the one hope that we have to fix it? Okay? So let's look at um, uh, what went wrong with us personally. Again, the context for this story in Genesis 3 is creation. That, that as the story of the Bible goes, God has created uh, people in order that they would love God and love their neighbor. And so the sort of the foundational truth from the opening of the Bible is God is the creator, we are the creation. God is the king, we are the subjects. Or in other words, uh, there is somebody on the throne and it is not you and it is not me. There is somebody on the throne and it is not us. And so what happens in this story is, if you kind of look at it in its entirety, Adam and Eve knew that God was their king and that they were to live in basically submission to the way that he decided to rule their lives. And so what happened is, of course, Satan in the form of uh, a serpent comes and he asks Eve, okay, what did God tell you to do? And she says, well, God said that we shouldn't do this thing or else we're going to die. And Satan goes... Of course, you're not going to die. And so what he does is he makes a case for Adam and Eve to do this thing, even though God has already made this case for them not to do this thing. So here's what, here's what Eve does, is she looks at these two options. Here's what God says, here's what the serpent says, and she says, I will decide myself. Now that doesn't seem like a very big deal. You know, you may think, oh, she's just sort of critically thinking about her options. But as soon as she did that, There was this seismic shift intellectually for her. Because she was basically saying, look, God doesn't get to determine reality for me. I do. I get to choose between these two options. Seismic shift away from God's authority. And so basically, here's what happened with us personally. Is that we have decided, just as she has decided, to kick God off of the throne and to take his place. The thing that is wrong with you and with me is that we want to usurp the king. We want, as the creation, to be treated as if we are the creator. We, we really do think and live uh, like we are the center of the universe, right? And so uh, what this looks like in, in our lives is that now we have this default operating system in your life and in my life where we think I get to call the shots I get to determine what is true about the world. I get to interpret reality according to how I see it instead of according to how God sees it. And so one of the ways that this looks like is that we just start tacking on the phrase for me at the end of our sentences. You know what I'm talking about? Where we say, well, that may be true for you, but that's not true for me. You just think, okay, I I don't think that's how truth works. But that's what we start to do. Where we say, you know, I don't think getting drunk is, you know, a big deal. It's not a sin to me. And what we do is, what we're doing by attacking on those two words is there's this enormous assumption in place that basically says I get to determine what is true about reality instead of God, which is basically us putting ourselves in the place of God. Now, for those of you who are big fans of uh, the show Lost... I mean, what is John Locke's like most repeated phrase throughout the whole series? Don't tell me what I can't do, right? I heard Locke fans out there. Don't tell me what I can't do. I mean, I was at the SRC this week, and I think I heard some dude basically say that on the basketball course. Was, Don't tell me what I can't do. Don't tell me what to do. We do not like being told what to do. Am I right? I mean, if if you look at the um, emblem on the Virginia state flag, we've talked about this in in RUF before, but we're going to talk about it again. The emblem on the Virginia state flag is this pretty amazing picture. Here's what the picture is, if you've seen it. Google it, if you don't believe me. Um, The picture is, is of a man on his back, dead. And off to the side of him, kind of on the ground, is this crown. So we have this picture of this dead king on the ground, and, and towering over the top of this dead king is a woman with a spear in her hand, and her foot planted on his chest. This is for real. And, and around this uh, this picture in Latin is "sic simper tyrannis. thus always to tyrants. The whole idea is here in America, we do not like kings. And in fact, our whole country was built on this idea of independence. We will not have a king rule over us. And if you are a king and you come over here and try to rule over us, this is what our women will do to you. (laughs) Right? I mean, this... But what this is is that this is a picture. The Virginia state flag is a picture of you. And it's a picture of me. We do not want to be ruled. We want to call the shots. We like to think that the world, we, we are at the center of uh, the story about the world. And so what this looks like, if you take this idea that we do not want to be ruled and you trace this theme throughout all of our lives, it just pops up everywhere. I mean, think about the way that we do religion. Think about the way that you think about church or campus ministries. I mean, most students at App... Think about, I'm going to decide where I'm going to go for a church or for a campus ministry based on if it entertains me. I will go there and I'll get plugged in if they have cool music. And so we basically decide based off of style instead of substance. And this is why we so often leave when we stop getting things out of it. When it stops sort of working for us, we leave. It's just all about us. Or think about the way that we do relationships, right? You're in a relationship, and as soon as you get bored, I'm out. As soon as you start to lose interest in the person, I'm done. And I was talking about this with somebody else today, that that the mojo with which we enter into relationships is really a cost-benefit analysis, where if the cost is not that high and I get more benefit out of it, then I'm in. But as soon as the cost starts Demanding more of me, and I'm not, this is not benefiting me, I'm just I'm not interested in hanging out with you anymore. If you trace that theme, this is how we think through our religion, our relationships, this is how we think about our money, this is how we think about our time, this is just how we think about our lives, is I want to do it my way. And basically what happens is now every relationship is basically a means to making me happy. Every relationship is about me getting my needs met. Regina Spector um, has this song called Hero. And if you've heard it, at the end of the song, she repeats this line over and over. I'm the hero of this story. I don't need to be saved. I'm the hero of this story. I don't need to be saved. And so what happens is that we begin to believe the lie that God and my friends and my family. These are all just the supporting cast in the story about me. I'm the center of it. I get to call the shots and basically now all of my relationships are about meeting my needs and making me happy. And this is what has gone wrong with us personally is that we believe the lie that we are at the center of the universe and we're not. So what happens to us relationally then? Because if you think about it, you have everybody in the world thinking, life is about me, my relationships are about me making, you know, getting me happy, meeting my needs. You put all these people in a room together, how is that going to work? What went wrong with us relationally as a result? Well, when we, begin, when we get untethered from our connection to God, carnage ensues. Uh, this past summer... I got a new computer and so life is so much better for me now because my old computer, which was like six years old, was driving me crazy. You know about the spinny beach ball of death, right? <laughs> I mean, I would see the little spinny beach ball of death all the time. I'd click on Safari and the little beach ball thing would pop up and like five minutes later it would decide to kind of eventually open up. I'm surprised I never threw the thing against the wall, so there's maturity being demonstrated right there. But um, the, the most annoying thing about it, though, was its battery. It was so weak that it, I had to plug it in in order to open it. You know, in order to use it, and if it ever got disconnected from the wall, from the power source, I literally had two seconds before the battery would, you know, suck out, drain out, and the whole computer would just crash. And so it'd be super annoying. I'm at the table, you know, working on my whatever, and uh, my dog would walk by and snag the cord in its foot on its leg, and I have to like lunge forward to try and like make sure, you know, I got two seconds in order to fix it. But what that is, is that is a picture of us. That is a picture of us where we have decided, where we have disconnected from the power source of God. The, uh, the, the computer of our life has crashed and we have died. And this is the relational fallout. And so what I want to do is uh, show you that we have begun to pursue intimacy and and relationships not out of our connection to God, but basically out of selfish interests now. And so all of our relationships, because we're disconnected from God, no longer become, okay, how can this relationship be used to glorify God? How can this relationship be used to advance his kingdom? These relationships are about making me happy and meeting my needs. And the fallout of this is sort of you—you kind of see this threefold pattern in this story, and I want to show it to you. The first pattern we already kind of talked about. The first step in this pattern is—is rebellion. You know, where where we like to think we're the hero of the story and not God. We've already talked about that. Here's the sort of the second step: insecurity and fear. Here's, I, I get this from verses seven through 10. Adam and Eve realize that they are naked, and so now out of, out of fear and insecurity, out, out of shame and guilt, they start covering themselves up. right? They make these little fig leaves to cover, uh, to cover themselves up, meaning they are now dominated by insecurity and fear. And here's what's so important about this is they do not want to be exposed. And so what they do is that they hide the most vulnerable parts about them from each other, which is, of course, a total breakdown of vulnerability and intimacy. There's just walls up now. And this is really key because what this means for you and for me is that we are desperately afraid of being discovered for who we really are. And so what, what this means is that we turn into hiders We turn into liars. We're constantly giving people the Heisman of of getting in and getting to know us. And so we just lie and we make excuses and we cover up our tracks. This is why for some of you, there have been deep, recurring, sinful, addictive patterns in your life and nobody knows about it. And you're too afraid to tell anybody. Even your closest friends. Too afraid to look at somebody and say, look, I am addicted to pornography. I'm talking to guys and girls with that one. Too afraid and so we just lie, we don't talk about it, we just cover it up. I mean, there, there are some of you in this room that are struggling with same-sex attraction and are too afraid to tell anybody, and you've never told anybody, and so you just hide behind something so that nobody else will ever find out. I mean, there, there are some couples in this room who... Uh, identify themselves as Christians and present to the world that you are mature and spiritual and yet you don't tell anybody that y'all are really just having sex with each other. Or basically going all the way up until intercourse and then stopping. And so what what that looks like as, as you hide and sort of as you lie in that sort of situation is that you only hang out in each other's apartments when the roommate's gone, Or if the roommate does happen to be there, uh, you you, you go into your room, close the door behind you so that you can, quote, watch a movie. And you're lying, you're hiding. These are fig leaves that you are putting up that you do not want other people to know about. And it doesn't have to be even in the sexual realm. I mean, we, we do this, I mean, we can hide behind our religion, right? If you do all the right things, you know all the right things to say, all, you use all the right language, you go to all the right prayer meetings, all the right worship nights or whatever, all that can be is just a nice spiritual decoration to divert people's attention away from understanding what the chaos is like underneath. It's all just a big fig leaf of saying, I do not want you to really get to know me, so I'm just going to put up all these religious activities. You know, we can even do this with our personality. Because I know when you come into college, for some of you freshmen, you get here and nobody knows anything about your background. We know nothing about where you came from. And so you really can come to campus and really sort of craft a new personality and a new identity. Say, man, I was this way in high school, but when I get to college, I'm going to be the funny guy. The, the guy with all the confidence. Or I'm going to be really religiously devoted when I get to college. Or what a lot of people do is they just they do the opposite. They say, I was really religious in high school. and I get to college, I'm just scrapping that and doing my own thing. And I want to be known as the guy that drinks everybody under the table and who can handle my alcohol. Right? I mean, you kind of can craft your own personality, and all that is is a big fig leaf where you say, I do not want someone to really get to know me, the real me, the me behind this front. This is what is going on. My, um, when I was a junior in college, uh, the very first time I went to my RUF meeting at the University of Oklahoma, we were at the campus minister's house in his living room, there's 15 or 20 people there, and my first time to a, an RUF thing, and I vividly remember this, he uh, asked this icebreaker question to the group of, what CD is in your CD player? For those of you who don't know, CDs are these um, thing called compact discs where you play music on them. So he asked, you know, he asked the group, what CD is in your CD player? And I immediately panicked because here I am at this Christian thing and I know that the CD in my CD player was like Eminem. And so when it got to my turn, I lied and I said, uh, it's Cademan's Call or it was uh, some worship CD and I lied. Now why did I do that? Because I was so afraid of that these people would actually think, here is a Christian who's listening to Eminem and, dis- and discount me and write me off. And so I lied, and that was a fig leaf. I'm, just, I'm, I'm hiding. I don't want people to really get to know me. So what is it that you're hiding behind tonight? What is your fig leaf? Well, that's the pattern that we begin to see. The first step is rebellion. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. The second step is insecurity and fear, which is I don't want anybody to really know me. And then here's the sort of the next step in the pattern, which is uh, accusation, accusation. Look, God um, confronts them with questions to try to root out their sin and then to bring them back to Himself. And so, look at verse 11. He says, and he said, who told you? He's talking to Adam. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And Look at Adam's uh, response in the next verse. It's hilarious to me. He goes, The woman. The woman. The woman is the problem. And then look at what Eve Eve says when God then goes and confronts her. Verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. It wasn't my fault. It was the serpent's. And so you see what they're doing. In their effort to deny their sin, they're blame shifting. It wasn't my fault. It's hers. It wasn't my fault. It's his. And of course, the reason why they did this, and the reason why we do this all the time, is because it lets us off the hook, right? We're not really to blame because it's somebody else's fault. We don't ever have to really sort of assume responsibility for it. So we just make up abscu- excuses for it. You know, we say, "Sure, I, of co- yeah, okay, I did it, but the reason I did it was because I'm having a bad day." So I'm stressed out. I'm tired. It was really his fault. It's really her's fault. Just needed, you know, I just needed kind of to release some steam, right? And as long as we keep making up these excuses, we never have to assume responsibility for our failures. And so, uh, what we often do is we say things like this: If the girls on this campus didn't dress the way that they did, I wouldn't be struggling with it with less so much. Where we say things like: If my roommate weren't so annoying and disrespectful of my space. I wouldn't be frustrated all the time. Or we say things like, if I can just get through recruitment, then I wouldn't be so stressed out and anxious and restless. I mean, what we are doing is uh, we are making excuses, blame shifting. This very week, I was—I um, uh, told Catherine, I would, my, my wife Catherine, I told her I would be home at a certain time. And I came home Two and a half hours after when I told her I'd be home, and what I did was um, uh, I just didn't say anything about it, hoping she wouldn't bring it up, hoping that it wasn't going to be an issue, hoping that maybe it would just go away. So even my silence was me hiding. It's just another fig leaf. I'm going to be quiet, hope that nothing happens. Of course, nothing. You know, of course, something did happen, and she came to me and she expressed how frustrated she was that I didn't come home when I said I was going to be home because I was hanging out with some some friends. And immediately, like a knee-jerk reaction, I said, look, it was not my fault. They were just holding me up. And Catherine's like, so they had like a gun to your head for two and a half hours (laughs) and you couldn't say, I've got to go because I told my wife I'd be home at a certain point. I was like, no, it was their fault. They were just talking a lot. And I, (laughs) it was just, it was knee-jerk reaction. It's not my fault, it's theirs. But look, Adam and Eve aren't just accusing each other; they're accusing God as well. God, it's your fault. Look at verse twelve again. He says, "The woman you put here." Look, I know I screwed up. I know it's my fault. But but it's really your fault because you put her here. I mean, have you all ever done this, where you start blaming God for the issues in your life? God, why did you make me like this? God, how could you have allowed this to happen? How could you allow this breakup to happen? He was supposed to be the one. We start accusing each other, we start accusing God, and everybody else is the problem instead of us. And, and here's what you have to hear. You, will, you can't help anyone, and your relationships will be doomed to chaos, and you will never find healing ever until you admit that your biggest problem in your relationships is you. You. You can't help anyone and your relationships will be doomed to chaos and to failure. And you will not find healing unless you are willing to admit that your biggest problem in your relationships is you. I mean, think about it for a second. You close your eyes and imagine all of the relational issues that you have. So think about your roommates, maybe all of them that you've had if you're a junior or a senior. Look back through all of the issues that you've had with your roommates, all the relational problems. Look at the problems that you've had with your family, the way that they annoy you and that the way that they don't understand you, the way they don't get you. Think about your relationship with your friends, what's frustrating there, that they bug you, they hurt you, they betray you. Think about your, your relationship with your boyfriend, your girlfriend, how they get under your nerves sometimes, they drive you crazy, they're part of the struggle. Here's the question. What is the one constant in all of those relationships? <laughs> you. You are. You are the one constant threaded through all of those relationships. So if you are in a dating relationship, let me, let me talk to you real quick for a second. Because um, some of you honestly think, if my boyfriend or if my girlfriend would just change X, Y, or Z, then we wouldn't be fighting so much. We would not be struggling so much. If they would just change this, if they give me more attention, if they start talking to me more, if they would do, respond to my text a little bit quicker, X, Y, or Z, if they would just change, we would be okay. And what you have to begin doing in this context is thinking differently. You have to begin thinking, I am the problem here. You have to begin saying things like, Jesus, I desperately need you so bad that if you don't fix me, if you don't change me, I am going to personally destroy this thing. That's sort of the language that you have to begin using on yourself. But what about for those of you who are not in dating, romantic relationships? Here's what this means for you. You have to ask yourself the question, Do I weep more over my sin... And the way that I break God's heart, the way that I'm ruining the world with my sin, do I spend more time doing that or do I spend more time complaining about the failures of other people and the way that other people frustrate me? Some of you are thinking, preach it, Matt, preach it, because I wish so-and-so was here to hear this right now. (laughs) Or you're thinking, man, I wish so-and-so over on the other side of the room, I hope he's paying attention right here. But look, I'm not talking to them. I am talking to you. You have to begin thinking and admitting the reality that your biggest problem in your relationships is you. It's not your flaky friends. It's not your messed up family. It's not your boyfriend or girlfriend. It is you. So where does that leave us? If we are personally... Rebellious and damaged and messed up, and if our relationships are fractured and messed up as a result, where does this leave us? What hope do we have to fix these two things? Well, of course, um, the hope begins when you begin to realize that there is a bigger story in place here. You, you will begin to get healing for yourself and for your relationships when you begin to become more and more aware of this bigger story in place. And Let me tell you what I mean by that. Look at verse 15. God is, is cursing the serpent and here's what he says. I will put enmity, meaning warfare, between you and the woman, meaning the serpent and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Here's what he's doing. God is making this promise that there will one day be a descendant from this woman who will crush Satan and sin and selfishness completely, but that he will be damaged in the process. So, of course, this promise right here in verse 15 is pointing forward and ultimately finds its resolution in the person and in the work of Jesus. And so what happens, of, okay, so how, does, how is Jesus the hope for fixing our messed up relationships? Here's how. On the night before Jesus was killed on a cross, he too was in a garden, just like Adam. And just like Adam, he had a choice between submitting to God's authority or to rebelling. And just like Adam, he was afraid. But where Adam rejected life and then brought about death, Jesus chose death and therefore brought about life. I mean, where, where Adam hides his shame and his guilt by covering himself up, Jesus is stripped naked, completely exposed on the cross. Where um, Adam runs away from life and therefore plunges everything into death, Jesus plunges himself into death in order to bring everything back to life. And And so here's what this means, is that Jesus is Adam in reverse, but better. He is Adam in reverse, but better. He is broken, and in so doing, he crushes the skull of Satan and sin and selfishness. And so, what's happening in this moment is that he is receiving the punishment that rebels like you and me deserve. He is receiving it in order that for you and me, we may receive the welcome and the gracious acceptance by God Himself. And when you begin to live by faith in the reality of the finished work of Jesus, here is how this all pieces together. Here is how this works. Think about your security, your, your insecurity and your fear. When you see Jesus stripped on the cross naked for you, what this does is this gives you the power to stop hiding and to stop covering yourself up. Because he was stripped naked in order to bring you in. And so what that means now is that you have this unbelievable stability and, and security where you can finally be real and intimate and vulnerable with people. Knowing the security of his love and his acceptance for you melts away your insecurity and your fear. Okay, think about the way that we blame shift and we accuse each other. When you see that Jesus was, was crushed for your sins... What this begins to do is that you now have an unbelievable confidence and a security that I can't, I can't, I can't lose God's love. I have it. It's, it's secure. It's, it's, it's finished. So therefore, I don't have to live a whole life of justifying myself, making excuses, being defensive. I can finally be real and honest and start assuming responsibility for the ways that I'm screwed up. I can start telling the truth about myself instead of blaming everybody else because the security of the gospel provides that for me. Let me close with this and try to piece this together. Uh, my wife and I, we've been married for for about five years now. And when we first got married, uh, my relationship to her drastically, radically changed. Because once we said, I do, and we were officially married, I was no longer worried about, is she the one? I, I was no longer worried that she was going to break up with me when I'm being a tool to her. I I was no longer worried and insecure that something was wrong in our relationship because she she hasn't returned my text after 10 seconds. (laughs) All of that insecurity was melted away because the stability of our relationship provided this unbelievable new security in me. And my relationship to other girls radically changed. There's no more flirting going on. I'm no longer taking girls on dates, which didn't really happen all that much anyway. But but there was no more going out with other girls. Now, your relationship with God is the same way. When you begin to trust in Jesus... It's like you are married to him in a way. And what this means is that he begins to provide the stability and the security for you where you now can start to live in light of that unbelievable security and say, okay, I don't have to be so insecure all the time. I don't have to live in fear. I don't have to give people the Heisman and live behind fig trees, fig leaves, so that people can actually get to know me. And I don't have to blame other people because Jesus was blamed for me. You see how that security gives you an unbelievable confidence. And yet, your relationship to sin and to selfishness changes as well. When you are married to Jesus, it's like you've broken up with sin. It said, okay, I no longer want to flirt with this. I no longer want to take sin out on dates. Selfishness and my relationships being about me is no longer a part of my life. I've broken up with it in order to get him. And so really, regardless of where you consider yourself, regardless if you consider yourself a Christian or if you don't consider yourself a Christian, the invitation of this passage is the same. And it is to come to him. Because Jesus really is the only hope to restore you personally and to restore your relationships. That is the hope and that is the invitation. So pray with me. Father, in light of this, in light of the security and the confidence that we have in the gospel, would you give us faith? Father, for those uh, here tonight who do not know you, I pray that you would give them faith and give them trust where they would Uh, break up with sin and with selfishness and to bow the knee to their king. And Father, I pray for the folks in this room that may have done that for uh, 500 times. I pray that tonight uh, you would give them the grace and the freedom to do it the 501th time. Uh, So would you do that? Uh, We would ask and we would pray in Jesus' name. Amen.